0: At the end of the Old Testament, little tiny book, two or three chapters, two chapters, I guess. We'll look at chapter 2, verses 6 to 9 today. <clears throat> Haggai 2, verses 6 to 9. You know, success is, uh, can be a very uh, elusive thing, especially uh, as we labor to serve the Lord. The world increasingly considers Christianity irrelevant or even evil. So it's easy to get discouraged and, 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 and conclude that we're pursuing a lost cause, for that's how much of the world around us sees it. But according to our text this morning, God sent Haggai to renew the hope of God's people that, with this great assurance that God's work will succeed. God's work will succeed. That's kind of the theme of this whole passage. Let me read it, verses 6 to 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And in a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. In other words, be encouraged. God's work will succeed. Now, Haggai weaves together three ways in which that success will be seen. So there's three points. The first is this. God's work will survive. God's work will survive. Often just surviving constitutes success. If you're a small business owner, and after the last six or eight years, you're still in business, that's some success. Cause many or not. So our text tells us that God's work will be successful and that it will survive. We have an expression which we use in our culture, and in regard to businesses and government agencies, we speak of, speak of big shakeups in organizations. That's when, often without warning, those in power suddenly find themselves out on the street, and uh, others whom no one ever expected are suddenly in power. And someone will say, "Wow, there was a big shakeup at wherever it was." Well, folks, God has a history of shaking things up. Right when people thought things would continue unchanged forever, God has often upended history. When wickedness overran the earth, God sent widespread destruction in the flood, and all the things which seemed so secure were suddenly shaken apart. When the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and Egypt was the great world power, and the children of Israel were nothing, and that had gone on for 400 years, God suddenly shook Egypt to its roots, to set his people free. Later, ancient Israel turned away from the Lord, feeling secure, knowing that they had God in their pocket. And when the prophets warned that God would shake things loose, if they did not repent, they disregarded that because after all, God's temple is right here in Jerusalem and God wouldn't do a thing to his temple. But God wasn't kidding. He sent the ruthless Babylonian army against his own people. Jerusalem was burned to the ground. Tens of thousands of of people were carted off to Babylon as captives, and God shook the history of his own people to bring them to repentance. And through, but through it all, God's work survived. Not the buildings, the wealth that people had admired, but a faithful remnant of God's people doing his work. That's the promise Haggai delivered to these people in verses 6 and 7, as he pointed them to the ultimate shakeup which is coming. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come. Haggai was talking about that cataclysmic chain of events at the end of time when, when Jesus comes to judge and destroy and recreate his world. Jesus himself describes it in Luke 21. He says, there will be signs in the, in the sea and moon and stars on the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. In Second Peter 3, God gives us a similar prediction. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare, That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt with the heat. The point is, God is going to shake everything in his universe. The whole order of things as we know it will cease to exist the same way. But through it all, God's kingdom will survive. Indeed, God's kingdom is the only thing that will survive. Now that truth held encouragement for the people in Haggai's day. Remember, they were building a temple, uh, which, which was small and looked insignificant to them. They were, they were surrounded by opposition, which threatened the success of this project. They were wondering if it was all worthwhile. But God wanted them to know that doing his work, no matter how insignificant it looked, is worth the effort, because when God shakes things up, that's all that's going to survive. Now, you may object, hey, that temple, too, was destroyed later. Yes, it was. At least the building was destroyed. But the kingdom of God, of which that work was a part, remained forever. In the same way that God's work among us will survive. Not this building, but what happens here. Not these jobs we have, but what we do there. Not the houses that we live in, but what goes on in them concerning the kingdom of God. Not this present material world, but how we use it for the sake of Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. And folks, between Israel's ancient history and the end of time, God continues to shake the world and change the course of history. Civilizations and world powers that once looked invincible are now only dusty remains for tourists to contemplate. Nothing in this world is secure of its own power. God is sovereign over everything, and he shakes history as he pleases. But through the ages and to the end of time, his work will survive. That was Jesus' promise. I will build my church, and the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. So pay attention to how you invest your life. The only thing of lasting value is what we do in conformity to God's plan. Everything else will eventually come to nothing. Keith Green sang that uh, rather pointedly as he paraphrased Psalm 127 with these words. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labor in vain who try it all, building anything not according to his call, unless the Lord wants it done, you'd better not work another day building anything that will stand in his way. Be careful what you build. And you who labor to be faithful, don't be discouraged. As you strive to serve the Lord, to trust and obey him, as you die to self, freely giving yourself away, when it seems as if it's all for nothing, do not forget what God has promised. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And in another place, don't grow weary in doing well, for in due season we will reap if we faint not. God's work will know success, for God's work will survive. But it's not just about survival. There's a second truth here. God will provide for his work. God will provide for his work. You know, the distribution of wealth is a hot topic now. It's always a political thing. Uh, The wealthy of the world believe that their wealth is theirs. They worked for it. They invested wisely. And now they have the right to benefit uh, from the profits. Meanwhile, the have-nots of the world uh, say not so quick. That which you invested did not really belong to you. The earth is not your possession. It belongs to, the, to everyone. Therefore, everyone should benefit from the wealth it produces. So enter the state, which claims the power and wisdom to make everything right, to redistribute wealth along the lines which it believes to be most equitable. Of course, the state is a function of the wealthy. who have the, power, who have the wealth to put them in office. Or the state is a function of the masses who have the votes to put them in office. So the state becomes, in in its claim to sovereignty, to redistribute wealth, the state becomes the pawn of either the wealthy or the, the masses, whoever has the most votes. And the controversy rages on in every new election cycle. Meanwhile, God's people are trying to do his work, finding that almost always there are too few resources to do this most important work in the world. And that's discouraging. Sometimes it seems God's work will never prosper. And since we tend to judge the value of things by their financial statement, God's work sometimes appears to be a losing operation, at least a second-class endeavor. But in our text, God again points us to the end game, where this is all headed, the ultimate outcome. In verse 7a, he says, I will shake all nations, and the desirable nations will come, and I will fill this house, that's his temple, with glory, says the Lord Almighty, for the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. God says, all your views about wealth are all wrong. The wealth of the earth, the silver and the gold, it belongs to me. And he says, when I shake the earth, it will all fall into my lap and be used for my glory. I will use it to make my work glorious, filled with incomparable splendor and majesty. Now God sent Haggai to say these things in order that his people would be reminded to trust him, to provide for them. He knew their needs. He could provide as we read in another place he owns the cattle on a thousand hills he can provide indeed not many years later the god moved the pagan king of persia to provide from the royal treasury whatever was needed to finish building this temple god has all kinds of ways of providing he always cares for his work and god will provide for his work in our day too We don't see all the glory yet, but we labor in hope. That's what Paul said as he served the Lord, sometimes in poverty, often working a second job, sometimes seeming to be a fool in the eyes of the world. But listen to what he wrote in Romans 8. I consider that these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. But meanwhile, until then, He labored trusting God to provide. As he wrote in Philippians 4 I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in need. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God will provide for his work. So you who are discouraged because God's work looks so meager, don't be deceived. What you see today is not the whole picture. Keep serving the Lord. Honor his son, Jesus. Lay down your life if necessary to advance his kingdom. For one day, its glory will fill the earth. For God, who guarantees its survival, will provide for its glorious success. Finally, Haggai makes a third point about the success of God's work. God grants peace to His people. God grants peace to His people. The debate about war and peace is the hottest issue around these days. Everyone wants peace. It's great dis- disagreement about. What course of action might bring peace? Well, peace is the promise with which God ends this prophecy in verse 9. In this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Actually, the word there is shalom. I suspect we've all heard that greeting, shalom. I don't know if you understand the fullness of that word. It's the Hebrew word for peace. Uh, But it means so much more. Here's a lexicon definition. Shalom means peace, prosperity, health, completeness, safety. It's not just the absence of strife, but also wholeness, harmony, completeness, and fulfillment. Wow, that's much more than the absence of war, isn't it? Those are all things for which we strive our whole lives and often die without finding. In fact, those are the things that people search for, search every place for, Forsake the Lord, give up the church, uh, abandon the faith because of some promise of shalom, some utopian promise. But God's promise is crystal clear. God says the shalom we seek will be found in serving him, not somewhere else, in doing what he's doing, in building his temple, pursuing his work in his kingdom, Admittedly, we don't see all that yet. Indeed, it's the false prophet who says, peace, peace, when there is no peace. God's true people labor in hope of a whole new order of things where God's peace will be complete, but we don't see it all yet. Revelation 21 describes this great shalom to come. We read there that the curse and sin and death and all their effects will be removed. There will be no longer any suffering or dying or crying. There will be no war, no hatred, no envy, no strife. God's people will live in perfect fellowship with their creator and with one another. Well, it's not just a utopian dream that somebody had. God has already executed his plan to bring such shalom. When his world was full of people rebelling against him and, and, and refusing to go his ways, God loved that world so much that he sent his son the prince of peace and jesus lived among us proclaiming peace to those who were near to god and peace to those who are far from god but it was through his death on the cross that he actually brought true reconciliation for in his death jesus paid the debt that we owe to god so that he so that the offense could be removed So that God is reconciled to those who trust in Jesus and give allegiance to him. In him we will inherit that eternal shalom that he has promised. Ah, but the beginning of it is ours to experience even today. When Jesus predicted suffering for his people the night before he was uh, uh, crucified, he said, I've told you these things all about the suffering. I've told you about this so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. Take heart. I have overcome the world. So the Spirit says, don't be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Certainly in the new heaven and the new earth, God's peace will will, will be ours. But even today, in the midst of the trouble and the conflict, God grants his people peace. Everyone longs to know success. And when we see someone who has found success, we wish we had known uh, what he knew earlier. Surely we would have invested all we had and share then in that great success. Well, if you want success, here's the one venture that holds certain promise. I tell you, while there's time to invest your life, it's the work which alone will survive the great shakeup at the end of the world and everyone between now and then. It's the work which will end up with all the wealth and glory as, as God has promised it's the work which will know peace and wholeness and harmony and fulfillment, not just now but forever. That work is the work of the kingdom of God, the building of his temple, the building of Christ's church, a temple made of living stones from every tribe and nation on earth, people who put their trust in Jesus and become his disciples. If you are pursuing some other kind of success, at best your success will be short-lived. But if you're pursuing this God, Lift up your heads. Cast aside any discouragement or self-pity, for the victory belongs to the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we easily lose sight of the big picture of uh, what's happened in ages past and what you've revealed will happen at the, at, the, at the end of time. and We sometimes think that this thing that you've given us to do it's is pitiful, and it's poor, and it's meager, and it's weak, and, it, and it's going nowhere. So, Father, give us uh, eyes to see what you've done in the past and what you've promised for the future. Help us, Lord, to know that uh, that, that w- when the, the whole world is turned upside down, the only thing that will survive is your kingdom, and that we are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, May we live that way. Help us to know, Lord, that, that uh, the earth is yours and everything in it so maybe we not despair when we're called to live uh, with little, when we don't have what we think we need. For, Lord, we know that you provide, and you don't send us forth without providing what we need. We thank you, Lord, that already today uh, you, you grant us peace in our hearts and our relationship with one another, and especially in our relationship to you, and we look forward to the day when peace in a new heaven and a new earth is the true utopian shalom that people long for, never find, because they look in the wrong place. Oh, grant us faithful hearts, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you find your bulletin, there's an affirmation of faith there. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a, a statement of what it is that God is doing in the world and how it relates to us. Let's read it as an affirmation of our faith. Together. I believe that the Son of God through his spirit and word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living mentor.